listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. One of the aims of this podcast is to let you meet some of the people I've been lucky enough to have regular access to over the last 15 years of covering the global insurance business. I think today's podcast manages to do that pretty well. Dennis Mahoney is a broking industry legend. A consummate intermediary and negotiator, he rose to be a trusted counsellor at the top of the global broking world, right at the peak of the Aeon chain of command. Since relocating to Bermuda and leaving Aeon, he's taken on a wider range of executive and non-executive roles, the latest of which saw him steady the ship at independent London-based wholesale and reinsurance broker RFIB ahead of its eventual sale to Integro Tizers. Dennis is always honest and forthright in his opinions and has never been afraid to rock the establishment boat in his career, particularly in his zeal for market modernisation. He doesn't duck questions and he always tells you exactly what he thinks, warts and all. But despite a fearsome reputation, he's actually incredibly easy to get on with and is very happy and comfortable in his own skin, as I think this interview shows. I found Dennis on excellent form and buzzing with ideas about the world in which insurance finds itself and the prospects for its future. Do enjoy the listen. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Dennis, you're broker through and through. First we had MMC JLT. Now we've just had Aon Willis. So is now a really good time to be starting up or ramping up an independent reinsurance or insurance or reinsurance intermediary, would you say? I I guess it's like everything else. When's a good time? When's the right time? And the problem is you only know that after the event, (laughs) not before. To the extent that everything's in flux at the moment, very ultra low interest rates, negative interest rates, and now COVID, it must mean that there's a lot of change and change is always a great opportunity to start a new business, whether it's broking or underwriting. And so I would encourage anybody that's thinking about coming into the business, that this is as good a time as any. So do you think there's a big opportunity for independence or perceived independence to be able to prize away talent from what will end up becoming the big two? Yes, I think you don't have to prize the talent away. We live in a world today where many professionals are loyal to their profession. They're not as loyal to their company any longer. They think of themselves as bankers or accountants or underwriters or insurance brokers, in my view. And I think that as the companies get larger, it's increasingly difficult to get everybody to to, to sign into the culture, you know, to drink the Kool-Aid, as my American friends would say. And so people are more mobile. Um, And that's a huge change. From when I came into the business, if I saw somebody's CV, and then more than two jobs in their career, I'd be shocked. <laughs> Nowadays, professionals believe they have to move every five to seven years, either from their company or within their industry, to stay relevant, to stay fresh. And I, I understand that. I don't think people will be prized away from Aon Willis, Marshall, too. I think they'll want to walk out on their own. And that's healthy. So is that the big broker's fault then? They're always saying, as of course, quite rightly, so that their business is you know, all about their people. But do they ever really look after their people as much as they say they do? That's a huge question. Certainly the big brokers provide 
an environment where you're more likely to get training. You know, you're more likely to learn in that environment because it's in their interest to invest in their people in all sorts of programs and improvements. Also, I would suggest that it's more likely to be a, a safer environment. As someone who's got three daughters and three granddaughters, for example, I'd feel much more comfortable with them in that sense, in working for a large organisation which tends to be more disciplined in how it behaves with its people within the company. But I think there's a point in anybody's career where you're in a big company, it's getting larger and larger because of industry consolidation, and there's what we call danger in the comfort zone. You've got comfortable, it's like your favourite jacket or favourite pair of shoes, isn't it time to move on? And that's why, again, I think it's, it's not a case of the big brokers not providing an exciting and rewarding environment for the people, but the, for the people themselves to want to move on in their careers, and that may mean moving to a smaller firm. Dennis, we're in a difficult time now with people getting pay cuts and furloughs and all sorts of things, that vocabulary that we certainly wouldn't have been speaking of uh, six months ago. In that context, is it right for business to prioritise pay cuts over dividend cuts? Yeah, that's, that, that can only really be answered by the board of directors looking at the cash flow, looking at the balance sheet, in my view. And I'm sympathetic with people that, that, that are upset about having a salary cut. But if we look at the average salary across the UK, it's probably less than £30,000. I don't know what it is currently. Let's say it's somewhere around £25,000. How many people in Aon are less than £50,000, for example? Or indeed, the underwriting business. So I think sometimes in this industry, we, we need to sort of just look around us a little bit and think about how well paid we really are as an industry versus other industries. I suppose that's, it's a public relations sort of point, which brings me to my next question. How do you feel as an industry, as a very experienced industry veteran, how do you think the public relations side of the COVID-19 crisis has been handled by the insurance industry to date? You know, I was thinking about this yesterday, that in some ways, COVID could be like asbestosis is. Because the latest research I'm seeing suggests that although you appear to have recovered from the virus, It can manifest itself many years from now because of the damage done to your heart, your liver, your kidneys, your other organs, as opposed to just seeing it as a respiratory disease. Now, if the doctors are right, imagine that you're you're providing employer's liability insurance to somebody and you've brought them back into the workplace maybe a bit too soon, but everything's fine for a year or two years or three years. And then down the road, suddenly the virus that they contracted when they came back manifests itself in a very serious way. Who's going to pick up the tab? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Very difficult and one. And it's certainly going to be the insurance industry, isn't it, that people are going to look to. And specifically, do you think the insurance industry could have been more on the front foot in terms of trying to rest the agenda to, to ex- at least explain its case? If it does have to exclude and not pay certain losses, do you think it's done a good enough job of explaining why? That's a difficult thing because... Because of social media, everybody in the world has an opinion on this sort of stuff. But if you think about what Evan Greenberg said, it was very, very clear cut. If the industry has to pay all these losses, it will be bankrupt effectively. Absolutely right. And the, the serious people in government understand that, don't they? I mean, that's why you have government programs like Flood Three, for example. There are exposures in society today that the insurance industry cannot possibly expect it to be the backstop for. That's the way it is. So... I'm very sympathetic to the industry saying, look, it isn't covered. But then the lawyers saying, well, it's not excluded, so therefore it must be covered. And that's kind of where we've got to, it seems to me. 
So my view is that that being the case, i.e. that insurers and reinsurers will pay claims for which they did not charge a premium and did not contemplate, will engender the situation in which carriers going forward will probably almost certainly have far more detailed wordings about what isn't isn't covered. And we've been trying to go in the other direction as an industry, making things simpler for consumers, simpler for companies to understand in terms of policy wordings. But it seems to me that the upshot of this is going to be that certainly if I was on the board of a carrier, I'd be making absolutely sure that going forward, we had a list of things that absolutely are not covered. Pandemics would be one. But anything that represents what you and I would call a sideways exposure could aggregate across many instances, many people would have to be very, very carefully excluded so that we don't go through this again. Dennis, it's very early stage, but Lloyds of London has managed to put out a very big industry loss number, very large, probably based on almost $100 billion Mm -hmm. uh, for this event. And does that make sense to you? Yes, because you've got to put out some sort of number. And again, we're not going to know in retrospect whether that's right, wrong or indifferent. But surely it must be right to be realistic and say, we recognise that this is going to be a very substantial loss. This is the best number we have at this point in time. And I think it's fair to say that historically, Lloyd's realistic disaster scenarios have been pretty accurate, haven't they? (laughs) Actually, sadly, you go back to the tragedy of 9-11. So I I think that John Neal's absolutely done the right thing there. Get a number out there. It's our best number at the moment. Better to get that out there now than leave it for people to come up with all sorts of wild scenarios. So it's almost better to have a kitchen sink number, do you think, than have sort of death by a thousand cuts? Yes. Prepare for the worst. Hopefully things will be better. With that kind of um, industry loss number hanging out there, then do you think COVID-19 is likely to spawn a class of 2020, 2021? Yes, I do. And I think that's a good thing. You know, not many people remember the casualty crisis back in the 70s, which created ACE, created Excel, created Endurance, and a whole slew of other new insurance and reinsurance companies because there was dislocation between demand and supply in terms of you know, capital provision limits and so on. So I think it's entirely healthy there'll be new players. Hopefully, hopefully, they'll be of the quality of what Steve Catlin and Paul Brand are doing. Very well run, large amounts of capital, very careful and detailed plan, equipped with just a lot of the best underwriters in the industry that they can possibly recruit. Let's hope that any other startups follow that sort of pattern that, that Stephen and Paul have put together. What about pandemic risk itself? I think you may have partially answered this earlier, but do you think it's something that's fully insurable in in private insurance markets, or is it something that you think is inevitable that needs a public-private solution? I think it needs a private-public solution because the world is global, as this has demonstrated. We've seen this virus spread around the world in really, really rapid, scary fashion, haven't we? And therefore, it needs a private public partnership, but it has to be global. Now, sadly, the world's going in the other direction at the moment. We're seeing global institutions attacked and criticised by politicians and by social media, which is a bad thing, in my view. It's going to be very difficult to get everybody on the same page for a global solution to what is clearly a global problem. But talking about looking at the future, I mean, all your career, you've always been a very far-sighted broker Dennis and always been pushing for the next level of advancement for the industry and always looking very much forwards. Lloyd's has gone through its uh, blueprint exercise to renew itself. What parts of that exercise over the last couple of years have, have interested you most? 
Yeah, I'm obviously, I've, I've been a Lloyds member for many years. I'm, very, I'm a big fan of Lloyds and I want Lloyds to, Lloyds to succeed. And I, I'm a big fan of what Bruce is doing and what John's doing. But I think that Lloyds should perhaps step back a bit and think again about being global. You know, a Lloyds solution or a London solution or an approach is, in my view, bound to founder. Our clients are global. Capital is global, despite what I said earlier about institutions being criticized. That's the reality. And so, you know, Lloyds is a member of a call, for example, the industry standards body. And I've long felt that the industry is missing a trick by not using Accord because it is global. All of the major carriers and brokers are members of Accord. Everybody respects our standards. And I think Lloyds and others should make better use of Accord as the vehicle to take the industry forward globally, as opposed to just a Lloyds or just a London solution. Are there any parts of the blueprint, any things like the capsule solution? Is that of interest to you? I know that these are the sort of things that you're very you've been very keen on trading and bringing advanced markets and trading to insurance. Yes, there are lots of initiatives going on. Akinova is a great example of some very smart people doing some very clever things to assist the industry. Um, You have David Edwards and his friends at Blockchain, likewise, working very hard to take the industry forward. And I would like to think that, that Lloyd's and various other institutions could embrace those initiatives and not see them as competition. I think that John Neal has started a whole bunch of initiatives going forward, and I think that's right. Some will work, some won't. Unless you try, you, you, you won't know at the end of the day. The great thing about Lloyd's is that it is the concentration of the best expertise in the world, in my view. And I don't live in London any longer, so I'm not biased in a geographic sense. And that's, that's hugely beneficial. You know, when we've had issues in the past, and we've had a lot of issues over the years, the Lloyd's underwriters, the insurance companies, the reinsurance companies and brokers have all pulled together to respond to their customers, to respond to the shareholders, respond to clients. And and, uh, that's why, uh, you know, I think there's a great opportunity for people to support John and Bruce and what they're doing at Lloyd's. But the same token for Lloyd's to remember that it is a global world and perhaps open the kimono a bit more to others. One thing that's come out of Lloyd's, which has probably not been a blueprint thing, but it's just been something that Brit has pushed on its own, is that something that was announced very recently is the key, I think I'm pronouncing it right, key algorithmic automatic underwriting follow syndicate that was launched very recently. It's a great fanfare. Does that appeal to you? Does that something interesting, do you think? And do you think it will solve uh, the market's expense problem? Well, I, I wish it was around when I was a young broker. It would have saved me a lot of shoe leather. <laughs> but um, it seems to me that things sometimes don't change. I was taught that I had to get one or two leaders on my slip first with the right size line in the right order. I would then trawl around the market. And at one point, you may recall, there were 400 syndicates that I had to trot around to finish the risk. So to that extent, what they've done is made it more efficient in a way, for the following markets to support the leading underwriters, the guys with the expertise. I think that's healthy. It raises the question, of course, of whether or not, as been discussed, those leading underwriters, those people with expertise, should be paid an extra amount at the end of the day. They certainly weren't in the past, and they didn't feel the need for that. And remember, Lloyd's was all about having a second and third pair of eyes looking at anything, which I think is a very healthy thing. And that's what the subscription market's all about. So... I think the key initiative is, is great, it's, it's to be welcomed, and all it's really done is all to make the bank, we've done business for about 400 years as far as I can see, and that's a good thing. 
it should lower costs. And it will indicate to the market, won't it, Mark, whether the leader's respected or not. Okay. Certainly, it's another pair of eyes. It's just that it is an electronic pair of eyes and a methodology. Yes. So it's a check and balance, isn't it? So I think that's a good thing. If I was the, the leading syndicate, it wouldn't bother me whether or not people were piggybacking off what I did. In fact, I'd see it as a check on, on my underwriters and what we're doing. And I've got my own business plan. Why, why worry about others? If I want to write 100%, I can, because I can go out and play sidecars and all sorts of facilities. Do I really want to do that? No, that's why I want a line structure that allows me to write 10, 15% or whatever it happens to be. If something like this does well, do you think it's the sort of thing that brokers should be seizing upon? Well, brokers have already got lots of internal facilities, haven't they, for some very big limits indeed. Some of them, of course, act as brokers providing MGAs and binders for others. Some of them have got internal facilities to, to, to attach those risks, to, to bind those risks. And there's nothing new in that. I think that will continue as before. The issue is whether, to your earlier point, Mark, whether technology allows all of that to take place at a lower cost and make it more efficient so we're not duplicating effort. And that, again, leads back in tech technology, doesn't it? If we, if we adopt distributed ledger technology, something like blockchain, then the whole process not only becomes more efficient, there's no degradation of information and therefore less disputes about errors and emissions disputes, for example. Does it worry that something automatic like this might create systemic risks? You know, where, where an underwriter thinks they're putting down a hundred million line, but it's amplified so quickly that it's a, suddenly it's a billion dollar line, and no one re, and it wasn't checked by a human, and uh, and it's a sort of the biggest fat finger error that anyone's ever seen. Well, we saw long term capital management, did we? Didn't we <laughs> rise <laughs> rise like a star and then collapse, despite having some very very talented <laughs> and brilliant people setting up logarithms to get into business. Um, so yes, that's entirely possible. I mean, who knows? And systemic risk is something we only tend to really, again, know about post the event, isn't it? I was going to ask you also, as such an experienced broker and someone who understands markets and marketing in those markets and trading in those markets, absolutely. If you have this kind of mostly automated follow market that can get anything home once you get the right leader with the right line in the way that you described, how many leaders do you think you actually need to produce an efficient and deep and liquid enough pool to clear most risks? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when Lloyd's decided that they really had to have a, a rethink about the least profitable syndicates, and so effectively they, they closed them down. We can use all sorts of terminology, but that's the reality. Post that, we also saw a number of leaders pull out of classes entirely. Now, in the past, underwriters would re-underwrite the book. They would say, look, I, I don't like DNO very much anymore, Dennis. I'm going to write at a higher level. I'm going to write in a more restricted form. It was very rare for someone to simply say, I don't write the class anymore. And I've fired the underwriter and the claims man, we're gone. Well, and we're seeing that, which is very different from what we've seen in the past. There was an announcement the other day in the press about a, a major US carrier pulling out of all marine business. Full stop. End of story. Good night. Now, they're perfectly entitled to do that. I mean, they've, they's got the CEO of the insurance company or reinsurance company has got to put his shareholders before his policyholders. That's just a fact of life, whether you like it or not. What it does do, of course, is reinforce the value of the broker. Because now the broker's got to go and find you a new market, got to try to provide continuity. And so I think that we're going to see this continuing. I think that if you, if you look at some of the best and brightest, let's take Richard Brindle, for example, very successful in what he's done. He's quite open about, I'm going to be in a class if I think it makes money. If I don't think it makes money, I'm not going to stay in the class. 
Absolutely right. That's business, isn't it? Operating as it should do. So there will be leaders come and go that people respect. And leaders should decide that if there's excess capacity, then yeah, either get out of the class entirely or reduce your light substantially. And we've seen a lot of that in the last three years in particular. And the brokers have had to run around a lot explaining to their clients why that is. Now, what it does for a marketplace, Mark, is raise the question of stability and continuity. Are we still selling ourselves as a market in London or Bermuda, as a market that provides continuity and stability? Or price? And that's really what you're getting at when you ask the question about how many leaders do we need? And the answer is, well, if we can provide a good product at a fair price to our clients, that's the market that we, the brokers, would always be striving for. So I, I sense some sort of frustration on, on that sense that you can't trust underwriters to re-underwrite anymore and you have to exiting classes. Would it be right to say that you're, you're more of the view that there's, only, there's no such thing as a bad risk, it's just the wrong price and the wrong terms and conditions? Well, yes, I've been a broker all my life. The only, the only bad risk I've seen is one the other broker had. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. But there's a deeper thing going on here now. You're the CEO of an insurance company. Your shareholders change almost every millisecond, don't they? Because your shares get traded in and out. They might be part of an ETF. So who are your long-term shareholders? The answer is they aren't. And, you know, I think the average life expectancy of a CEO in the US is something like five years, maybe less nowadays, I suspect. Okay. And so that balance has tipped in which maybe in the past, the CEO of an insurance company was balancing that shareholder policyholder thing, Mark. But now it's just going to be shareholder, 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 isn't it? By quarter. What were your earnings per share this quarter? Oh, that doesn't look very good. Time to change the management. So I'm not blaming the underwriters. It's, it's their, their investors, their share owners, that are responsible for this turmoil. Fair enough. I would have to do a study on, I would say, my gut would be telling me that the average CEO in insurance, though, probably has a longer than average uh, tenure. Yes, guessing. that's because the life, lifestyle of the product, the life cycle of the product is longer, <laughs> isn't it? You know? <laughs> Well, one, one might assume that they could, uh, you know, they'd want to write a load of long tail stuff and then retire early. Well, there was a history of that happening in Lloyd's, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. That was the old apocryphal story, wasn't it? That two years before retiring, the, um, the underwriter would, uh, yes, write a lot of unlimited motor or something. Yeah, and then disappear. Yes. <laughs> anyway, actually talking about Lloyd's, and we've had a couple of months now where everyone seems to have been reasonably happy trading electronically and talking on Zoom and Skype and other things and placing their business using PPL and other software tools. So do you think that Lloyd's should bother reopening its room when, if and when uh, the lockdown is eased sufficient in central London? Well, I've been quite vociferous about this in the past, so I'm not going to change. Close the building. <laughs> it's expensive. It's unnecessary in my personal view. Every single underwriter has a very nice office across the road, don't they, in Fenchurch Street or Ledmore Street, where they've also got a lot of other people that don't sit at the box. Uh, and I've said this to John, and I, I know that John, uh, John is sympathetic to that view. I'm hoping that after what he said yesterday, I think, that we, we don't plan to reopen the room till August, I think he said. Yeah. That means we've got at least two quarters behind us of successfully trading in a different way. Two quarters. If during those two quarters our premium volume actually went up, and maybe that's not a fair measure because rates are going up generally, but the number of transactions actually increased, I think that kind of says it all, Mark. We don't need 
that open outcry and how are we going to do it anyway with social distancing? Now, I would also point out that Bermuda doesn't have a building, a central building, and has handled huge amounts of business for the past 25 years or so without the need. Okay? You'd say that there is a cluster effect, but it doesn't, you don't need to have a trading floor. No, absolutely not. And if you, if you spend time in Bermuda, you walk up and down Front Street, you see the brokers walking up and down with piles of files as if it was Lime Street or Venture right? No, no, I mean, exactly. Yes, I, feel, I feel extremely at home whenever I'm in Bermuda. It's just the weather's different. Yeah. Now, you know, some of the old guard will be sending me notes and saying, well, what about the silver and what about the paintings and what about the history? And, you know. Well, there is an actually, there is, there is a campaign for an insurance museum, so they could go there, I would presume. That's what <laughs> yeah. it might be. That would go down well, Mark, if they hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. Anyway, you've been talking about Bermuda. Bermuda in the 80s, it was the excess casualty market. From Hurricane Andrew onwards, it's been the property cap market. In the last decade, it's really developed the alternative capital and ILS world really well. What do you think it's going to be known for in this coming decade? And particularly now that some of its tax advantages vis-a-vis onshore US risk have been eroded somewhat. Okay. It seems to me that our business is no different from any other business. There are two types of capital, intellectual capital and financial capital. And those are the core of of, of any business in my view. We've been able to attract a lot of very smart underwriters and brokers to Bermuda over the years as an industry. And we've seen a number of them start up here and build here. Ed is building here. Tizers is building here. A number of the brokers that have not been here historically have started up operations. And I think that's that's great news for Bermuda. It's great news for my clients, our clients at the end of the day. And just yesterday, Ed announced a great new initiative in terms of trading risky electronically. God bless them, absolutely the right thing to do. That's, that's, that's their trade ed platform, isn't it? Yes. That's correct, yeah. which I don't know a lot about, but I would say to them, God bless you guys, absolutely the right thing to do. It deserves every level of success. So I think there is an opportunity for Bermuda to start writing more and more direct business as opposed to its traditional reinsurance book, as you quite rightly point out. That's what we did when ACE and Excel and Axis were set up. And there's also something else going on here, of course. If you're, let's say, a 30-year-old building your career as an underwriter or broker, it might be more attractive to come and do it in the sun going forwards with a lower tax rate than staying in London. So you could see a sort of talent or brain drain, I think, of today's generation of very bright people deciding to come and work in Bermuda. And what about with things like InsureTech? Do you think Bermuda will be able to grab a slice of that? And I suppose with Bermuda, is it really all about speed to market that's always going to be its advantage in terms of having a regulator that gets it and gets you in the game quite quickly? Yeah, Bermuda's got a fabulous track record here in terms of very clear, strong regulation. And that continues today. The government's very, very conscious of the need to maintain that fabulous reputation they have for integrity here. And that will continue. But, you know, whether you have a trading room or not is not the same thing as having or not having face to face. Brokers still fly into Bermuda with their clients and go to see the underwriters. The great advantage for Bermuda is that they're only an hour and a quarter, if you like, from New York, two and a half hours from Miami or whatever, hour and three quarters from Boston. So it's extremely convenient for the clients to come here or for the brokers to go to the United States and Canada to transact business on a face-to-face basis. And that's a huge benefit, particularly if we're going to move into a new area of, of aviation which is going to be very difficult um, and there are all sorts of discussions about that 
But I think that's going to play to Bermuda's strengths enormously, that proximity to the biggest market in the world being the United States. And I'm sure that the very smart people at Tizers, at Ed, at the other brokers that are building out their operations here have really thought that through. And that's why they're here. That's why they're expanding here. Dennis, I know you're still on the books at RFIB, but uh, you're not in an executive role and you're speaking today in a private capacity. So it's not like you to be out of employment for very, very long or, or not involved with some new project. So what sort of direction is your next role likely to be taking you? Well, at the moment, my focus, given my age and my underlying health condition, is to survive COVID. Thank you. <laughs> um, I joked with somebody the other day, I saw three birds that looked like vultures sitting on my railing outside my house. <laughs> Do they know something I don't know? No, it, it's very nice when you become an old man like me for people to ask you to come and join them. And when I've completed my tour of duty with Tizer's RFIB in April next year, I'll move on to do something else. I love the industry. You know, if I, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm just happy to work in the business. I love the business. And it's a fabulous business to work in. I've been an underwriter, I've been a broker. And I intend to continue as long as I possibly can, uh, as long as somebody has something where I can add value, to be honest with you. That was a very political answer, Dennis. We'll just have to read all about it when it does happen then. So presumably, yes, it sounds like, yes, you're definitely in the market. You have, you're not fully retired then. No, I've, I'm entertaining a number of proposals from people, but pointed out, look, I've got a very, a very proper contract. I will, I will behave according to that contract, uh, but I have no intention of retiring, Mark. No. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>